The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. So, who are we talking about today? Well, let's see. Ah, yes. Tolstoy and Shakespeare. Perhaps you've heard of them. Do I need to say anything else? How about this? Tolstoy, as you've never heard him before. And Shakespeare, as you've never heard him before. How's that for a twin tease? That's coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I am Mr. Jack Wilson, your humble, humble, humber, your humble little host. It's Thanksgiving week here in the United States, and that means a lot of food and a lot of family. And when there's a lot of family, that means a lot of fighting. Just kidding. A lot of fun. How about that? Speaking of fun, got a couple of fun things coming up on the podcast today. First up, we have part three of our look at Gospels that were written or rewritten, I guess I should say, edited, changed, altered by famous historical figures. Our guest will be Scott Carter, author of the play Discord, The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy. If you've heard the first two installments, you know a couple of things. Number one, Jefferson was a fan of Jesus, but he took a razor blade to his Bible to remove from the New Testament any of the miracles. No walking on water, no raising of Lazarus, a crucifixion, but no resurrection. He thought those had been added later by interfering priests. Dickens, this is number two, Dickens also wrote a version of the gospel, but he took a nearly opposite approach. He amplified the miracles. He loved stories. He loved the idea of the miraculous. His own life was such a rags-to-riches story, he maybe needed miracles or had reason to believe in miracles more than Jefferson. It was also an age of miracles, technological miracles, and natural phenomena being understood as scientifically possible. Plus, Dickens just liked delivering the goods to people. He knew how to hold a reader's attention. He was as good at that as maybe anyone has ever been. Stephen King and J.K. Rowling are no doubt nodding with admiration. I don't think even they would disagree. Okay, so here we go. The third piece of our puzzle, Leo Tolstoy. Where will he fit in? Does he break the tie, so to speak, or does he give us yet a third way of looking at the gospel? All these three actually did this, by the way. They all rewrote the New Testament in some fashion. Scott Carter has devised the idea of putting them in a room together and letting them explain, justify, argue, debate. And then we won't even take a break before Scott Carter. How about that? We'll get right to it. But I do want to tell you about the second half of our podcast today. Lori Frankel is here. And this is really not quite like anything I've done before on the podcast, or ever in life, (laughs) for that matter. Think of it as a a literary pajama party of sorts. FMK. Do you know that game? M stands for Mary, K is for kill, and F is, well, use your grown-up imagination. We have changed that one to friend, as in befriend. Friend, marry, and kill. And we're going to apply it to things from the world of Shakespeare. Characters, plays, people, we will see. I will present them to Lori and let her decide which one to marry, which one to kill, and which one to befriend. You don't need to put on your pajamas for this, although you're welcome to do so. Why not? If you're home? (laughs) Maybe not if you're... (laughs) Excuse me. Maybe... (laughs) Maybe I'm picturing all these people listening to the podcast on the train, changing into their pajamas for this. No, 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 no. You don't need to go that far. (laughs) One of the great things about the podcast is hearing from listeners who are traveling around the world. That's why I've shared so many emails with you. I love the idea of having a worldwide community of people. 
from all walks of life listening to the show. What a community. What a great community we have. Many, many students in one college or another or high school, people from Brazil, from China, from Mongolia, from Iran, from India and Africa, Toronto and Tasmania, all reading literature, enjoying it, learning from it, and checking out the podcast. And although there are many, many different uh, listening experiences, people will say I'm listening while I'm hunting. Someone might say I'm hiking the Appalachian Trail. Those stand out, but there are also some recurring themes. Jack, I listen while exercising or while driving to work, while taking walks, while falling asleep at night. And in one that comes up as often as any other, when cooking. I feel privileged to be joining you on any of these missions, whether I'm blasting from a speaker or filling your car with hopefully smooth tones or in that crazy spot right inside your ears, which almost feels like I'm in your mind. That's how it feels when I listen to podcasts anyway. These thoughts, are they mine or yours? We're melding our minds together, I guess. Anyway, Lori happened to mention that she listens to the podcast when cooking. And I knew we had Thanksgiving coming up here in the States, which for those of you outside America, it's a feast day where we typically spend a a full day or more in the kitchen prepping food for the family. Turkey is the tradition, but there's more than just that. There's stuffing and potatoes and pumpkin pie and alternatives to turkey, too. There's butternut squash and green beans, bread, wild rice, and ah, there's just a lot of different dishes around the country. When I was young, I would wake up hungry, eager for the feast. It was hard to wait. As I got older, I looked forward to the cooking. Eating is great, a true self-indulgence. Maybe the most selfish thing there is to do. Feed yourself to stay alive. But feeding your family is a special feeling. It's giving. Thanksgiving. That's the name of the holiday. It has a double meaning. When you're a kid, you give thanks because you're told to. And hopefully because you want to. When you're older, you give thanks for all that you have as well. But you also give thanks by giving. You're thankful for what you got, what you have. But you're also thankful for being in a position to give. Thanks for letting me give, which is also, by the way, how I think of podcasting. It's wonderful to get. I have Patreon supporters. I get nice emails. But the honor, the true honor, what truly fills my bucket or my heart or my soul or whatever you want to call it, the true source of awe-inspiring wonder, the true cause for thanks is that so many people have allowed me to give. That you've listened to this little show. My thanks to all of you this year. And now, Scott Carter. Okay, joining me now is Scott Carter, author of the new play Discord, which is streaming in a production by the Philadelphia Lantern Theater. The play looks at three famous historical figures who all prepared their own versions of the gospel. In past episodes, we've talked with Scott about Thomas Jefferson and Charles Dickens, and now we come to one of the rare authors who's as famous as Jefferson and as beloved as Dickens, the great Russian novelist Count Leo Tolstoy. Scott Carter, welcome back to the History of Literature. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Jack. So from my dilettante's perspective, Christianity seems to have been more deeply rooted in Tolstoy than in Jefferson and Dickens, especially in the second half of his life. Was he more religious, would you say? Did it affect his life more? I would say that he is more obsessed, more driven, all of the characteristics that we associate with Russian novels mm-hmm. of the 1900s are very much living <laughs> in Lev. And what's interesting about his gospel is that this comes after he wrote War and Peace. 
Then he writes Anna Karenina. Yeah. And after this, he wants to kill himself. Yeah. He thinks that fiction is useless. Yeah. He thinks that everything he's done is a waste of time. And at one point, his family takes away the knife and fork at table mm. because they're afraid he's going to stab himself. They take away his guns. They're afraid he's going to shoot himself. And he's just in the depths of despair. And these are some of the themes that that run through Tolstoy's life are, are seen in the character of Pierre mm-hmm. in War and Peace and then Levin in Anna Karenina. And so one day he's suicidal. And this is all in um, Tolstoy's My Confession. And, and he's thinking, why live? And he looks out the window. And out the window in the fields, he sees the peasants on his farm working. And they're smiling and working. And he thinks, how can they do this? How can they keep going? Hmm. They don't have all the privilege I have. They haven't had an education. They've never traveled. They have no money. And so he, he sought to become one of them. So he starts dressing like a peasant and going out in the fields at dawn yeah. and working with them. And he's going to absorb their secret. Yeah. And what he figures out after a period of time is that the secret is their faith. Right. So then he thinks, all right, I'm going to go to, uh, there's a chapel on these palatial grounds that Tolstoy's had. There's a little chapel. Next Sunday, I'm going to go to the chapel and I'm going to get their faith and then I'm going to be saved. So he shows up at the chapel and he is humiliated first because all the peasants turn to him and start bowing and deferring right. to him. And he they all recognized him. Yeah. <laughs> they all recognize he's the master. Right. And he just wants to be the anonymous penitent sitting in a pew anonymously, being left alone. But then he also gets the, the catechism of the Russian Orthodox Church. And what he realizes very quickly is that it is simply a tool for the continuation of the czar's agenda. That all of the, for instance, all of the Ten Commandments have been rewritten mm. to include the czar. Oh. <laughs> but, but so honor thy father and mother, but also honor the czar and the, czar. <laughs> and the priests. And in the time of slavery, honor one's slave masters. Right. And, and so then what he decides is he's going to spend the next two years. He knows Latin, but he's going to spend the next two years learning, teaching himself Greek. Yeah. So they can read the texts in the in the original languages. Oh, that's what was behind that. I didn't realize. Yeah. I didn't know the yeah. first part of the story that that he was yeah. objecting to the additions that had been made. I thought it was just him trying to get closer to the original text. No, no, it's it's he wants to refute. Yeah. Yeah. What's there, and it angers him. And there's there's a monastery, not far from his house, uh, the Optima Monastery, and it actually, I think, appears in the Brothers Karamazov. And when Tolstoy, at the age of 83, left his home in the middle of the night, he first went there and they wouldn't allow him in because he had been banished from the church. He had been excommunicated. And that is still true to this day that they will still not talk about him. There was a documentary crew from the BBC that tried to interview people there about him. And they said, no, he's, he's excommunicated. We will not talk about him. But anyway, so he becomes this student, but often he, there is something so brilliant about Tolstoy, so driven about Tolstoy, and then there is a sliver of a factor of insanity where he's kind of a crackpot. Yeah. So for instance, he gets some things wrong. For instance, he did one translation of one verse, and he thought that it, what Jesus was saying is that everyone must make their own shoes. So he hires a cobbler to come to his <laughs> estate to teach him how to make his own shoes. And then he does make his own shoes. And then what he's going to do is he's going to walk the 18 miles to the Atima monastery to show the monks how he's living the life that Jesus wanted. But he was such a terrible cobbler that by the time he gets there, his feet are bleeding. <laughs> and they have to send back to the estate for one of these royal coaches with the family's <laughs> seal on it to come and get him. So not only is he not, he's dressing like a peasant, he's making his own shoes, but he's coming back in this coach like out of Cinderella. Yeah, yeah. So what led him to create a new gospel? Oh, well, he very much wants to get his story out. Mm. Uh, but what's happening also in Russia at the time is a lot of his friends are being imprisoned 
but they know they can't imprison him. Mm. What they can do is stop him from publishing new works. And so he had a chain of Confederates who would sneak his manuscripts out. They would go to Switzerland and they would be published there. Mm -hmm. But he very much wanted his new translation, and he called it the Gospels in Brief, is, is the usual translation of it. And it's very stark and very driven. And he's not quite with Jefferson of no miracles, because what he'll do is he will seek to explain the miracles by natural means. So, for instance, the mm. feeding of the 5,000. Right. He says, well, what if a lot of the people came and brought their own food? And then when Jesus shows that he's breaking the bread and sharing it, that the people who brought food with them, they start sharing it with others. And so that's how 5,000 people were, were fed. Mm. He also believes that the afterlife is irrelevant. He believes that Jesus was only telling us how to live the best possible life on earth and that the afterlife, if there is one, is something that we are going to discover later on. But he doesn't, he doesn't believe, like Jefferson didn't believe, the speculations on the particulars of the afterlife. Right. Is that rooted in the text or is he reading out some things that Jesus actually said? I think he's looking at what Jesus said and he's dismissing all the elaborations of the church later on. The other thing he's doing is he's becoming a biblical scholar. So, for instance, there's a line in most gospels and most scriptures that you, you read today, most translations. It was said before that you should not kill. I say you should not be angry with someone without a cause. Well, what Tolstoy says is that in the earliest versions, the phrase without a cause does not exist, and that some priest in doing the copying in the years before Gutenberg, when Bibles could be mass-produced, and every single one had to be written out by monks, somebody added the phrase without a cause. And so Tolstoy said, well, who doesn't think they have a cause whenever they're mad? Mm. So, so by the priest adding it, what they're really doing is perverting Jesus's message. And he, he caught that because he was able to read it in the original Greek? And because he's going back and looking over different generations oh, of right. translations. Right. I mean, he has great resources and a tremendous amount of time. He lives away from everybody for most of the year. Sometimes they'll go into Moscow for a, for a while. The family will go into Moscow, but most of the time they're on a farm. And so, so when he gets something in his head, he can follow it yeah. to its conclusion. Yeah. And so to the disappointment of many of the lovers of his fiction, he spent, from the age of 48, he died when he was 83, he spent most of that time writing religious texts, did a couple of short stories, a few short stories and a couple of novellas, the Kreutzer Sonata, Man and Master. These are brilliant, but he really dismissed them in the way that, let's say, Marlon Brando at the end of his life would talk about acting as perfect. Oh, perfect you know? analogy. And the story yeah. was like that with, with fiction. <laughs> Yeah. So that, that, that in my play becomes a distinction that, of course, Dickens thinks that it's the highest form of expression that, that, that exists, and Tolstoy thinks it's worthless. Yeah. Now, we've talked about Jefferson and Merrick, uh, his distaste for miracles, and Dickens, when we talked about him, we talked about how he amplified miracles. It sounds like, in a way, Tolstoy could take a middle ground on that in seeking to acknowledge the miracles, but maybe explain them in a way that makes them more believable. But I'm not sure that would be satisfactory to either of those two. So when they're in the room, is he serving as a peacemaker or is he just irritating both of the other two? No, he's not a peacemaker. Mm -hmm. Jefferson is a born diplomat, ambassador, coalition builder. Yeah. Someone who's always right. seeking common ground, common ground, which is the only way the Declaration of Independence got passed. Yeah. But was to concede this to this these states. And, and yeah. smart enough to hear what everyone else is saying and to be able to see where they're coming from and kind of do the analysis on it and then come up with the solution. Right. And Tolstoy is coming from a land that is dominated by czars. It's not a republic. Mm. And the notion of authority is very strong. And also he's coming from this extreme privilege all of his life to the point where if he believes that that's, that's, he is completely certain that he is right at all times, he would often dress like a president, go out to the, to the road outside of his estate 
And as people were passing by, he just harangued them. Mm. And these are people just trying to get by with their lives. And and he, of course, at night could go back to his estate. Would he have been uh, upset with Dickens's gospel had he known about it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because Dickens is a disappointment to him as a person. Uh He loved him as a fiction writer and he was an inspiration to him. But he's disappointed that someone obviously as intelligent as Dickens could also fall for fairy tales. Hmm. Right. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, I will leave it to the listeners to seek out your play so they can see all three of these fascinating characters in action with one another. Thank you so much. This has been a fascinating three-part series. I'm so glad to be presenting this in this format. Scott Carter, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much, Jack. It's my pleasure. Okay, wasn't that great? Check out Scott's Play Discord as soon as you can. So, let's put our Shakespeare hats on. What do we wear for Shakespeare? Our Shakespeare tights? Our Elizabethan garb? Or just our cooking clothes? A pair of jeans, maybe? A good sweatshirt? There will be time later to put on your fancy dress, people. Just preheat the oven, start up the podcast, and start chopping vegetables and hopefully Lori and I will keep you good company while you're at it. Lori Frankel after this. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is author Lori Frankel, whose latest novel, 123, tells the story of triplets in a town with new residents and old secrets. Lori has written several novels, and she first gained international superstar fame on this podcast when she destroyed <laughs> me in a draft of 10 Great Things About Hamlet. Lori Frankel, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. I, uh, it is my pleasure. I'm so thrilled to do this every time. <laughs> Has it been tough to live with your superstar fame rattling around in that huge mansion <laughs> that the the History of Literature podcast bought you? <laughs> I'm getting used to it. It's growing on me. Yeah, it is definitely so, a lifestyle. I could, I could come to charter jets and the, yeah. Well, let me give you a better introduction. How about this one? Critics have called Lori Frankel quote a modern Jane Austen of the Pacific Northwest end quote. What a tribute! I know, isn't that amazing? You must have felt great when you saw that one. Oh boy, yes. Champagne, so, pop I the champagne. Great. But yes. big shoes to fill, too. Yeah, well, that's also true. It's true, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to explain the idea for this. I had so much fun last time talking to you about Shakespeare, and this idea came up, and I thought, this is a perfect <laughs> fit for a Shakespeare enthusiast like Lori Frankel. So I'll tell you about it in a moment. But first, I just want to tell our listeners that you are hearing this in real time. Usually I... <laughs> give guests a a sense of what I'm planning to ask them. But this time I wanted to surprise Lori and our thanks go to Lori for being a good sport about this and and actually showing up. (laughs) 
<laughs> so she has no <laughs> idea what we're going to do. <laughs> no, and I'm only slightly totally terrified. <laughs> ah, so how have you been since our last call? It looks like your book tour was all virtual. Did you have a moment where you could do things in person or has it been all Zoom calls and so on? 100% virtual. It's mm. a very strange way to put a book into the world. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, it was it was great because I got to see a lot of people from the comfort of my bedroom. And on the other hand, it was, well, it was a bummer because I didn't really get to see any of them, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. And I sort of, as a, as a podcaster, I'm always kind of making the pitch to authors, like we reach so many more people than you reach in person and, and they agree, but they also say, you know, there's nothing quite like getting to meet people face to face and being in the same room and, and all of that. So I can totally understand why that would have seemed like a, a bit of an absence this past year since this launch of your book. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about it actually a lot in connection with Shakespeare because I'm also missing live. Mm, yes. And there's no shortage of Shakespeare on the screen and it just is not the same. Yeah. Well, hold that thought because okay. that may come up. Okay. <laughs> so I hope you're ready for this. It's a game that's Shakespeare based. It's not a quiz. Don't worry. I wouldn't subject you to that on the spot. And this is kind of a present I wanted to give to History of Literature podcast listeners. It's a, a more lighthearted History of Literature episode for the holidays. So the game is called Friend, Mary Kill. And it's based on a famous game, FMK, but I've changed the F because this is a, a PG rated show and F is a little weird in this context. Are you familiar with the game FMK? Yes, I, I am. <laughs> Although I, I think I'm going to write this down. because. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Make sure it's friend. Put that in all caps. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about three Shakespearean items. They could be characters or plays and so on. And I'm going to ask you to choose which of these you would take as a friend you'd enjoy in small doses, which one you would marry or happily spend the rest of your life with, and which one goes kaput, as my grandmother used to say. <laughs> I loved it. So that one disappears Terrible. altogether. Okay, so I've got 10 of these plus a bonus round. Are right. you ready? I don't know, but I'm going to try to be. <laughs> okay, let's start here. Number one, Hamlet. This is the character. Hamlet, Romeo, or Henry V? Wow. Husband material in any of those three? Maybe I'm on a qualified like, basis, I think. Yes, I know. I mean, husband material is yeah. asking a lot. I know. Oh my God. I know. Jack, I love questions. And in fact, unfortunately, <laughs> what I want to do is go away and write a dissertation about this for a couple of years <laughs> and get back to you. <laughs> well, this will, be your, this will be your outline for it. <laughs> All right. I think that though it, I, I, I never feel that... Romeo should die, which I really think is the is largely the point of that play. Yeah, um, right. But I'm going to kill him anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Such a pissant, and um, <laughs> you know, and, and he really just gets a lot of people killed, including himself, for absolutely no reason at all. Yeah. All of which could be avoided if he were a little more sensible. So I feel like yeah. Romeo. He's, he's guilty of the crime of youthful love. Let's put it that way. <laughs> But that's enough to execute him, <laughs> as Shakespeare does. Stakes are high. Well, and also, there's nothing to recommend him, frankly, as a friend, mm. and and much to suggest that he would not make a good husband. Uh, yeah, that's probably right. Okay, well, boy, he's like the most romantic person in the history of uh, <laughs> I know right? history of I know. literature, and you're not going to marry him. Okay, irony, I love it. Um, <laughs> I I think I would be friends with Hamlet because, and I in fact know that if Hamlet and I got together, we would have much to discuss. Yeah, yeah, right. Long talks. Yeah, um, yeah, right. <laughs> Long periods of listening, probably. Yeah, a lot of therapy, but <laughs> I. <laughs> But I have so many questions yeah. for yeah. him. We could talk right. forever, forever and ever. And he'd be a little a little too erratic to be more than a friend, I think. He's a little, right. you know, he's yeah. he's maybe the sort of friend that you see and you enjoy and then you don't see him for a year and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you go home and you bitch to your husband like, yeah. that was fun, but we just talked about him the whole time. <laughs> he didn't ask right. any questions. <laughs> he's got actually, some issues. <laughs> actually, I bet Hamlet is a really good question asker. I bet yeah. he's a good, he'd, good, he'd be good over coffee because yeah. he would would have lots to tell you, but also you yes. want to know all sorts of, of things about you. So that means you're going to be a queen. You're going to marry Henry V. Yes. 
as though there are some ways in which that is problematic for he's a little warmongering for my taste. I do want to say that, you know, that his he's a good wooer. His mm. scenes of woo aren't aren't screwing around. Yeah, um, right. Thing. I myself speak French about as well as he does. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Not a, not enough can be said about about that scene. Yes. When he essentially proposes in a language he does not speak, yes. which is a huge deal for someone for whom speaking is the whole point. I mean, he he he's as much of a of a talker really as Hamlet. Really, those two should marry each other. <laughs> yes. There's a sign there that he would be flexible or he would he would listen that you could mold him in a way that you would have some influence that you wouldn't just be a an appendage but you would be a partner that this man who is who is very certain of himself would however open himself up and and humble himself and take you in for, for love mm. and i and i think that that's a a really remarkable thing from yeah. him okay number 2 i think might be a little harder i, I bet <laughs> Okay, again, we're on three characters. Here they are. King Lear, Othello, and Macbeth. Oh, all right. Well, that is a little harder. I can tell you immediately I would marry Othello. Okay. For sure. Even though he killed his... Even though he killed his... You got to sleep with one eye open. (laughs) (laughs) But I would do the same. That would be my choice, too. Yeah. Yeah. The other two really don't lend themselves the to it. The other two think. really do not. No. Yeah. Well, and I guess I mean my if, again. My follow up question is: How old is Lear when we're when we're talking? Yes, because if right. This is Fifty years before the start of the play, he might have made a great husband. Yeah, which, right. I think it has to be at the time of the play, and that that would be a hard one to tie yourself to. Macbeth, I guess, you know, if you wanted to kind of go diabolical and feel like you were going to be a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing, he might be good. But otherwise. Well, I suppose one of the questions is, if Macbeth is married to someone else, what does his his art look like? (laughs) Right, right. Do you have to be Lady Macbeth to be married to Macbeth or could you be yourself? And yeah, actually, if you married him before the play began, he might be just a, 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 a decent guy all the way through. That's true. He might be. And I think I would pick him as my friend because, mm. though it's rarely performed this way, he must have the best accent. I really love a good Scottish accent. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to kill Lear and put him out of his misery. Is this yeah. like uh, eugenics or something? <laughs> took a dark turn. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's time. Like, yeah. Again, I just feel like, well, he, he, he could be redeemed. I That is another play that I always sort of think ends in a way that that could have been avoided. Hmm. Uh, he, he could live, but he would live for another, you know, 20 minutes. I mean, he's very old. Yeah, <laughs> right, like. right. Yep. Whereas Othello really, really, I mean, in fact, I have, I have qualms about the play because he turns in a scene. He starts, he starts the scene being so sure of himself and his love and his wife and his place in the world against very stacked odds hmm. and ends that same scene destroyed yeah right but other than that i think he'd probably (laughs) a great husband for many many years yeah right i mean he could have almost been in the category of the first one hamlet romeo henry v he would have been uh he's he's marriageable material for sure yeah okay (laughs) number three shakespeare's comedies shakespeare's tragedies and shakespeare's histories ah interesting yeah (laughs) So which one do you get rid of? Any of those three? Which one do you live with forever? Wow. And which one's in the middle? That's such a hard and interesting <laughs> question. I thought it was easy for me. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, but I'll let you, I don't want to spoil your answer, but I'll give you mine. Mine, okay. mine sort themselves pretty, a lot easier than I thought it might be, actually. All right, I'm going to tell you what I think, but then I want to know what you think. Okay. I get rid of the histories mm. because they're great. But they are not, I mean, of the three, I feel like they're the ones I could live without. Uh I also think, not so much on the page, but in production, the tragedies and the comedies make better viewing. That's probably true. Yeah. Than the histories. And the women in the histories are, you know, for obvious reasons, just not as interesting. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, that's totally true. I think I would 
marry the comedies really for the same reason, because I can watch them on stage again and again and again and again. And they're always funny and they're always different. And even when they're not great productions, there's, there's still these moments of transcendent humor that I just think 400 years later, that is still freaking hysterical. Yeah. And that is not unimpressive. Yeah. That's hard to do. I mean, of course, it's not like it's mind blowing. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to get it like 20 years. Like I watched Seinfeld and I half the stuff right. I don't laugh at anymore. Exactly. That's 20 years ago. That's so right. that's yeah. exactly that's exactly what it is because it's dated and it's it's off tone and it's yeah. retrograde and it's no longer appropriate, whatever. Whereas this stuff is still funny and in the hands of, you know, of anyone, which never ceases, frankly, to be moving. Yeah. And then I think. The tragedies, of course, are all of those things, and they are new every time you see them. But I find them more frustrating than the comedies because they are more complicated, Mm. which is fine for a friend, but um, (laughs) but one wants somewhat more like support. Right? They maybe aren't the uh, the person you want around the house all the time, and and. uh, not not the one you want to see at the breakfast table. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's what I that's what I think. What do you think? Right, I had it almost the opposite. I would uh, have married the tragedies, killed off the comedies, and been friends with the histories. Interesting. Tell me yeah. why. Well, my thing is the comedies, and once I I sort of famously we had a an episode called Overrated, the books you don't need to read, and I put Shakespeare's <laughs> comedies in there as I like seeing them performed. I find them to be a little bit lifeless on the page, which is not Shakespeare's fault. I mean, he wrote them to be performed, but I find the same thing, you know, that I don't laugh as hard as I I feel like I should, but maybe I need to revisit them. You've sort of made a a persuasive case for them. I'm, (laughs) I'm, uh, (laughs) and definitely at this point, I'm so familiar with the tragedies that there's more room for me to explore with the comedies. So maybe I need to do a deep deep dive on Shakespeare's comedies. You need a lifetime of, of exploration. Yeah, yeah, there'd be my desert island. I'd take wow. them along so I could uh, sort of learn more of the pleasures of them, whereas the tragedies are pretty familiar for me at this point. Yeah, that would be a really good choice for your desert island, I think. Yeah, okay. Number four, watching Shakespeare in the theater live, watching Shakespeare films, and reading Shakespeare. Oh, God. I mean, okay, for sure, well... Oh, this is a hard one. Mm. It's really hard and interesting one. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I I got to marry the theater. I mean, okay. I waver on because <laughs> because really what you just said, you you want to if you're going to be in a long-term relationship, you want to read them forever. Yeah. It, I mean, really I think that I I sort of object to those desert island questions. Which book would you bring to your desert island is a hard question because I feel like the answer has to be the complete works of yeah, Shakespeare. Right. There's it's the like I don't know who wouldn't answer that. Yeah. that that's the answer. Yeah. It would give endlessly, no matter how long you were stranded, you would still have more to yeah. to learn. In fact, I think when the desert island when they do books, they say we're going to give you the collected works of Shakespeare and the Bible. Oh. That those you get those those, you know, because otherwise that's everyone chooses, you know, those two right off the bat. Okay. Oh, interesting. See, no one's ever asked me that question. That's good to know. Okay, but here's my but. I think that the text has to be the friend because Mm. because of what you just said, they are meant to be performed. And when they are right you and it's that same experience. Every time I've seen Hamlet on stage three dozen times, and every time it I I hear things about a play that I've read hundreds of times. I hear lines that I just never noticed before yeah. somehow. And I mean, and that is what is, is truly miraculous, I think, about this work. But here's the thing. Here's how I was thinking of this. <laughs> All right. Whenever I read Shakespeare, I can picture a performance in my mind. That's true. And whenever I see Shakespeare in the theater... I want to be reading the text. I see. It always makes me want to read it. And I always think, oh, I wish I had just read it right before I came here. And as soon as I go home, I'm going to read it. Yes. So part of me feels like maybe the theater should be the friend because I always yeah. want to return to the 
you know, it's. Yeah, <laughs> I think this is a good argument. You know, it, this is what it, what you want to be is like those people who go to baseball games and sit in the stadium and listen to it on the radio at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you, right, right. You want to get both of these things. And I love the idea. So sometimes when you go to the theater, there's there's a lot of text like superimposed somehow, yeah. and which is also done in film all the time. And I really like that because. You get a little bit all at once. Yeah, films with the subtitles, with the English subtitles on is pretty good. Yeah, it is pretty good. So we're both going to kill the films, it sounds like, although... I know. Although part of me feels like, you know, I enjoy... Sometimes I enjoy films more than the live performance, just... It's, sure. it's, you know, it, it can be so beautiful and, and so comfortable and so well done. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. If, if this were <laughs> to kill, marry and like acquaintance or, I mean, I'm sorry, like marry <laughs> friend and acquaintance, that, that might that'd be, be better. Uh, yeah. That'd be better because it's true. Lots of the films are, I mean, incredible works of art, you know, just in and of themselves. But if you have to kill one of them, yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be that one. Okay. Let's move to number five. All right. Puns and wordplay. Okay. Iambic pentameter or <laughs> soliloquies. Oh, interesting. Or soliloquies. Huh. Interesting. All right. It, <laughs> what's interesting to me about that question is that it aligns perfectly with the one you asked right beforehand, which is to say the soliloquies work on film mm. beautifully, but yeah. I think less so on the stage and certainly on the page. I often just skip them because because I know I know what that because the soliloquy is so famous. I know its point. I know yeah. the point it's making. I don't. I'm not as interested in in reading it as I am in more rapid fire right, dialogue. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And on stage, it just kind of looks weird. And, uh, you know, it is it is an imaginative leap, but it is also something that has become somewhat outmoded and certainly something that worked better in The Globe, where an actor comes downstage and, and talks to people who are right there, as opposed to, you know, when we go to the theater now and, you know, and it's 500 mm. people in a dark room. And that is that is an essentially different thing. Yeah. But on film we're very used to that and they often do it as, as voiceover. There's action going on while that's happening. You know, I never thought of this before. Here's a, a not a dissertation, but a paper topic for some enterprising uh. <laughs> young undergraduate. I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but there's a, a phrase people use called hero ball where one guy kind of becomes a selfish. He's usually a great scorer and he goes one on five. He just takes it all himself. He puts, you know, he dribbles and dribbles and puts up the shot himself. He doesn't involve his teammates at all. And if it's a very good player who can do it, it's kind of can be very effective. But basketball fans dislike it because it doesn't it's not the beauty of the game and all five people working together and soliloquies are a little like that they're hero ball they're sort of the uh, the flashy thing for the star actor but they do not use the full power of a cast in a production yes right right exactly and and in fact really sideline not just the rest of the cast but the rest of the action mm. So we're killing that off. So we're killing it off. Okay. Yeah. I think for the same reason we killed off films, though, or because we killed off films, we no longer need the school. <laughs> 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 and, you know, the ionic pentameter, I think, is something that that you need for the stage. Mm. It helps. I mean, yeah. it helps actors memorize. It certainly helps you listen, particularly because, you know, that sometimes the, the language is very difficult and hard to follow and the characters are are very strange and making decisions that don't totally make super lot of sense. Yeah. So are we marrying that? So I think you have to marry that. Because yeah. we can't live without it. I feel like if we took that away from Shakespeare, we'd be taking away his ability to put pen to paper in a sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the ability to put paper to stage. Yeah. Right. If you want to see it performed, you need the iambic pentameter. Yeah. And the puns, I mean, in general, I feel that I have a friendship with puns, but I don't want to hang out with them all the time because they get annoying in large doses. Yeah. But occasionally they're great. And I think they go really well with reading because your my ear doesn't work quite that quickly. Mm. And often the wordplay doesn't perform as, as well again, I think, because right. we have become less good at 
that listening than Shakespeare's audience was. But when I see it on the page, I say like, oh yes, that's funny. And here are the four layers at which that forward line works. Right. And I can see that on the page in a way that I that I can't necessarily on stage. Right. Okay. Let's take a quick break and come back with our final five. Okay, we're back. Lori Frankel, are you ready for category I'm, I'm number so, six? I, I, I'm loving this. This, this. this is the most fun game I have maybe ever played. It's like a game where there are probably, you know, 50 people in the world who would enjoy playing it. But when you find each other, it's fun. Yes, okay. Yes. Iago, Lady Macbeth, and Goneril and Regan. Oh, oh that's hard. Because yeah. uh, you kind of kill them all yeah um, who are you gonna marry that's that's the tricky part actually no i, I know this one this one is easy i think okay. you kill iago iago is the worst <laughs> um, <laughs> iago is, is the worst but don't you want to be married to a guy who can kind of get things done and he's sort of exciting and he's you never know what he's gonna do no you just think no, no he's evil yeah <laughs> <laughs> He's evil in a way that that Shakespeare villains aren't usually, yeah, which is right. He's he's just evil, and and he's a racist. Oh yeah, that's right. He's terrible to his wife. Yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot about that too. You know, and the the thing <laughs> is, it could have been if he was you know doing these evil things, but had some agenda, like he had a. Uh, a good king he was trying to promote or or something like that that'd be one thing but he is so motiveless it's he seems to be just an embodiment of evil just for evil's sake yeah well and it goes back to the why i want to marry othello is othello isn't just a you know a fine guy he is a he's a really good guy he's yeah. a great man right and so the politics of that play have really rung during the previous presidential administration, I thought of I thought of that play and that character Iago, yeah. like daily. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's very interesting that in the list you gave me, I Iago. It's not you know it's not it wasn't like Iago versus Rosalind. I mean he's he's terrible, and I and I mean everyone <laughs> on that list is terrible, and yet I know for sure I would kill him, and, right. and also I would I know for sure I would marry Lady Macbeth. Ooh. I mean among other things, you can help her. <laughs> Again, we would probably have a really different relationship yeah. than she has with her husband. Well, I mean, you'd push back. Yes. You'd say, no, 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 we're not going to commit regicide here. That's not That's not what we do. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I would say. You're harsh. Let us not commit regicide. <laughs> you know, but whatever else you want to say, I mean, she's a very supportive spouse. Mm. And, and not just of her husband, but of their union, yeah. their family. Right, she's, right. She's yeah. very supportive. She's going to be in your corner. You she's just have to kind corner. of, you kind of have to put some limits. She'll get a little carried away sometimes. <laughs> and, yeah. And Goneril sure. and Regan as friends, so you can cool. kind of, because they're, you know, they're princesses. So it's basically yeah. like, oh yeah, I've got these rich friends and they're, they've got their own drama going with their inheritance and everything. But you know, when we get together, we just, we talk about how we yeah, uh, went yeah. to preschool together or whatever it is. <laughs> well, I think you could play them against each other. And, oh, and, and, yeah, and, and right. that would work really well. So who knows what you might get out of that. <laughs> and oh, they give me the they give me their leftover clothes. And, yeah. and once in a while, I get invited to some swanky party. So <laughs> some benefits there. OK, number seven, Shakespeare in Love, the film, uh -huh. Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. Or Mel Gibson's Hamlet. Okay, I would for sure kill Mel Gibson. <laughs> I wanted to give you a bit of a break. I wanted to give. I, I thought at this point it might be getting a little tough. I thought I'd give you a break. So yeah, that's the easy one. That's the easiest choice. And only really because the others are very good. It's not yeah. that his Hamlet is that bad. It's not. It makes it's very tight. interesting choices. Isn't it's, it like yeah. eighty minutes long or something? Like it's. It's like you a, know what. 
super it was, fast, supercharged. It, it, it's built for middle schoolers. Yeah, too. yeah. And there's something really great about that, frankly. Yeah. It's full of action and weird sex, but sex. And, you know, it's a, there, there are lots of things that are good about it. But however, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of at the point with Mel Gibson. I don't know if this exactly. is a hot take, but it's kind of like the Cosby show for me. I, I have a hard time, even in yeah. all the movies that I used to enjoy. Like I've just he's just over and right. over. He's shown himself to be uh, not my cup of tea. So and so there's something you know, almost offensive about marrying Hamlet to Mel Gibson in your in your brain. Like Hamlet deserves better as really do we all mm, uh, but, yeah. but that that is my sort of gut reaction to him at this point and fortunately there are lots of other really wonderful hamlet films yeah, yeah. yep yeah. okay so are you gonna marry the gwyneth paltrow blockbuster or the what was it the falkland islands <laughs> era of warmongering uh kenneth Branagh? yes okay that's a hard choice they're both Really, really amazing film. I love them both. I really do. I do too. I might, I don't know. You know, I might marry Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, right. I think it is a really, would be a lovely place to spend, to spend your days, to grow old. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is really what that, that film is about. And I just love the, they do a beautiful job in that movie of showing you how many people have to come together to make art happen. And I think that that is also a really lovely thing to think about in a kind of breakfast together, dinner together, go to bed together kind of way. Yeah. I think if, if you said to me, you know, you have to watch one of those films every year, I'd have a hard time choosing. If you said, if you had to watch one of them every month for the rest of your life, I think Shakespeare in Love would sort of rise to the surface of like, well, that's going to put me in a good mood and, and it's I'm just going to enjoy my time that I spend with it. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. And and every time and I've seen it, I mean, too, just dozens of times. And every time I'm I'm full of joy. I'm, I'm never bored. <laughs> I'm never like, oh, could you hurry up and get past this part to get to the other part? It's that's it's right. It's like every scene is is funny and then it, it moves quickly and it's just got so many good moments. Well, and those same 50 people who can play this game. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, that, right, that right. This appeals to, yeah, yeah. Little moments. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm always trying to explain to students. <laughs> yes, you didn't use the word nerds, but um, I, I think it was implied in there. So Shakespeare nerds. Okay, Shakespeare buffs. Okay, number eight comes right off of that. Kenneth Branagh. Laurence Olivier or Ian McKellen. Oh. And you can kind of do it as them as Shakespeare figures or Shakespeare, you know, it doesn't have to be them in their personal capacity or their career overall. Yeah. Just in their as Shakespeareans. Yes. This is just a hard, this is a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> this might be the hardest question. The yet. next one might be harder. I'm warning okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's appropriate because we're getting we're, we're getting towards the end. I, you know, I am embarrassed to admit, in front of of your many many listeners, that Olivier mm. is hard for me. Yeah, it is interesting because the complaint that people have about Shakespeare, which is like, I get that it's really good, but I don't understand it. And it feels too removed mm-hmm. from my experience. I don't feel about Shakespeare at all, of course, yes. but I feel about Olivier. Like I can see it, but it just, it seems very dated to me. Mm-hmm. And it's a style of, I guess, of acting and of, and of film, which, which of yeah. course is the only way I've seen him that is outside of my like linguistic comfort zone somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he's pre Brando and he's sort of, uh, it's a style of acting that's still a little bit declamatory for our taste these days. And, and it may be that the, his power, I mean, that's the thing I sort of admire whenever I see him, I, especially when he's young in something like Hamlet. And I, I do feel this kind of, you know, it's that weird thing where you feel nostalgia for something you didn't actually live through. But it does make me feel 
like, wow, what a powerful figure, what a powerful yeah. actor, what a presence, yeah. what a handsome person. It just, I'm very drawn to him charismatically. And I think, oh, no wonder he was the guy yeah. for his generation. Yeah. But I don't feel the warmth that I do. And with with Bronagh and McKellen, I feel like I want to know them. I want to meet them. I want them to be my next door neighbor kind of thing. Yeah, right, right. Yes. Well, and I think Olivier, those films must be different if you ever saw him on stage. Yeah, right. So it becomes a generational thing. You know, I also have to say that I disagree completely with his framing of Hamlet Mm. as a man who could not make up his mind, Uh, which is a perfectly reasonable read of the play. It is just not the one that I subscribe to. And I saw, uh, I don't know if you saw Olivier's Othello, which again, you know, was a thing that was done once upon a time. Right, right. I will never unsee it. And yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, We we made a good case. We'll kill him (laughs) of the three. Who are you picking? Oh, it's so hard. But I think I have to marry Kenneth Branagh. Mm. Though you could certainly make the case for Ian McKellen beautifully. Mm-hmm. Brana's, who I also have never actually seen live, whereas I have seen Ian McKellen not doing Shakespeare live, but his presence in the theater is 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 truly something that you would marry. Yeah. But I think on film, I have to go with, with Kenneth Branagh because every word out of his mouth, I understand. Mm-hmm. He, he, he manages to speak Shakespeare in such a way that you get every single word and i think that's what you want i mean i I feel like that's the goal that's the dream yeah and i always as good as mckellen is and as much as i love him there's a little bit of a i have a thing with meryl streep where i feel like this too where i i'm always kind of watching her acting and bronick is a little more where he takes me in a little more yeah where i feel like i can get into the character that he's inhabiting, that it's not just me admiring the way he's delivering the lines. Even though McKellen, sometimes yeah, I'm blown right. away by, uh, he almost frightens me how much he seems to be inhabiting the role. But there is something a little bit removed from me where Browning, I don't feel. It could be generational. It could be that I, yeah. when I when that movie came out, Henry V, it was just hit me right at the right time where I was open to it. And like you said, he's so easy to understand. And that movie was so much fun and just so exciting. And yeah. so I think we agree on that one. Yeah. Well, and his, his much ado is yeah. falls into the Shakespeare yep. in love category. I could watch it. I could watch it every day and be, and be perfectly happy. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Number nine. All right. Judy Dench. Oh, Diana Rigg okay. or Emma Thompson. Oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> Can we just say that we're not going to have a K on this one? We're just going to, yeah. we'll, we'll have a uh, set aside nicely because we, we can't kill any of these three. We can't. And actually, <laughs> if, if I could, if I could sit down with the three of them, if I could be friends with all three of them for an afternoon, yeah. I would be so, so happy. Yeah. I feel like you have just actually named the best dinner party <laughs> yes. to come up with. Yes. As opposed to, frankly, having dinner with, with Bronna and Olivier and McKellen, which actually would probably be fairly miserable. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Ian McKellen seems like he would be a ball to have, have coffee with. But that seems like it would be a hard dinner, whereas a dinner party with those three mm, I know. would be amazing and if I, I i have a hard time maybe it's because i'm a guy i have a hard time not thinking about actually being married you know married life because right. for example like <laughs> like like if we're just talking about watching them and stuff yeah. judy dench you know sure right. forever but if we're talking about marrying i mean diana rigg is like i had a crush on her for 20 years when i was a kid yeah, yeah, <laughs> I still do yeah. really and emma and thompson then- seems like she'd be just a wonderful person to spend your life with yeah that's what I was about to say. Yeah. The three of them. Emma Thompson seems like the one who you want to wander around on a Sunday in sweatpants yeah. with yep. as a person. But that's not really what you're asking. And so I think I think you're right. I think you have to marry Judy Dench because yeah. forever and ever and ever, she's just mm. astonishing yep. on stage, on screen, in any role you like. She's just an extraordinary actor. Yeah. We all are, but And then we'll we'll be friends with the other two. We'll be BFFs with the other two. <laughs> <laughs> and if I were actually if I were going to marry them as people, I think Emma Thompson would be the one that I would marry in my actual life and Diana Rigg would be the one I would marry if I were living her life, you know, if <laughs> 
if you were going to like if if my life was attending premieres and going to the theater and all of that, then maybe. But if it's, you know, living in my crummy little house and sitting in my basement and then making some dinner and, and smiling at the person across the table, that's Emma Thompson for me. Yeah. Oh, that was a hard one. OK, number 10. All right. Shakespeare's language. Oh. Shakespeare's plots and Shakespeare's characters. Oh, actually, I think that's easy. Okay. Well, I think <laughs> I marry the language, friends yeah. with the characters, and kill yeah. off the plots. Kill off the plots. That's what I figured too. Yeah. I, I kind of couldn't decide between language and characters. And then I thought, I here's a little twist. What if I had said settings instead of language? Oh, well, I don't care about the settings. Yeah. <laughs> Only because, I mean, I should temper that complete disregard. I just showed the settings because they're so open to interpretation right. because so often you, you go to the theater and this play that is absolutely set in, I mean, like I've seen Merchants of Venice that aren't even set in Venice. Like, it's like yeah, yeah right, right, right. That stuff is set necessarily. And even for Shakespeare, he was making up those settings. He, he never right. went to Venice, right. you know, right. and they're a metaphor for England. And then, you know, England is no longer that place anyway. So, so the settings, the settings can definitely be killed off. The plots. Um, some are good and some are horrible. That's some the are thing. Good and some are horrible. Yeah. And so, just don't make any sense. Right, right. Which is also fine, as it turns out. I, again, a fact that is truly remarkable. Like if I wrote a novel where the plot didn't make any sense, <laughs> that, would, that would definitely be a deal breaker. Whereas we are, you know, these are the most, like Richard III, you know, one of the top maybe three most acclaimed things ever written. And it makes just absolutely no sense yeah, at all from a plot yeah. perspective. Right. It's like uh, Raymond Chandler, you know, whereas. <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> The, the director went to him and said, I can't figure out, you know, who killed so-and-so. And Chandler just shrugged and said, yeah, I don't really remember either. I, I think I was confused about that when I wrote it. Yeah. And well, and, and that is, uh, I don't know how to say this. Fewer people sing the praises, it seems to me, of, of Chandler for that, for that reason. Yeah, right. Whereas Shakespeare turns out not to be a deal breaker. Yeah. And frankly, I think that the reason for that is not so much language as character. That is like the character of Richard the Third sells you on this plot that just does not make sense. Yeah, right. But the language—I mm, don't know how you can marry the, the language. You have yeah. to marry the language. Yeah, that's the, yeah. That's the husband that keeps on giving. I think. Yeah, that's right. Okay, we have a bonus round, but before we get there, I left something out. I meant to also throw in a wild card when we did category number three, which was comedies, tragedies, and histories, where you chose to kill off the histories, friends with the tragedies, and marry the comedies. I was going to say, what if I threw sonnets into the mix? Oh. Would that make any of your choices easier? Would you want to marry them, be friends with them, or kill them instead of one of your other three choices? Oh, I would kill the sonnets. Mm. I so then you could I, keep the histories. Then I would keep the histories. Yeah. 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 It is also interesting in light of your last question, because of course the sonnets are all language yeah. with, with little character to speak of. Yeah. Right. And, and little plot to speak of. But because I married the theater, theater. <laughs> over the text, yep. I, I, I got to kill the sonnets because they're, they're not performed. Really, they're they amazing. But they're not performed. Yeah. 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 Okay. Bonus round. All right. Might be the toughest of all. <laughs> We're going to step outside the world of the theater a little bit. Here are your choices. Shakespeare, soup, <laughs> and sunsets. <laughs> That's really funny, but also easy. I would marry Shakespeare. Okay. A, a billion times out of a billion, for sure. <laughs> but I know you love soup. I do love soup, and I would be friends <laughs> with soup forever. Okay. Among other things, because though I do love soup, I don't eat very much of it in the summer. Oh, right. You know, I make a spot, but... Yeah. But mostly, it is, a, it is a seasonal friend. It is a friend who comes back to you in the fall and says, <laughs> it's not necessary to despair about the gray skies and the dropping temperatures because, look, I'm here again, and that's great, and you hang out. But then the sun comes out, and you say, like, oh, this is wonderful. Thank you, but I'll see you, I'll see you in October. <laughs> okay. And sunsets you're going to live without, but you live in Seattle, so maybe that's, that's right. uh, <laughs> you've that's proven right. that. Okay. Exactly. So <laughs> the sun sets at 3.30 in the winter, and you probably can't see it anyway because it's raining. So I... Uh, I've learned to I've learned to do that. Not that they're not lovely, but if I have to kill one. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so let's send listeners to your books. For Christmas, I'm going to buy a Lori Frankel book for my sister who lives in Seattle. She has a son who just started high school and she does yoga every day. Which Lori Frankel book should I get her? Oh, okay. First of all, I love that she does yoga every day. Every How day. Much every day. It would day. be so lovely to do to do yoga every day. Yeah. My book goodbye for now does have a very sexy yoga scene in it. Oh, okay. And it is about <laughs> a computer software engineer in Seattle. So Okay, that would land. I looked at the Atlas of Love, which I think she would like, but I was actually thinking 123 might be the best. I I you know, I because one, two, three is is new in the world and therefore most recently departed from my hands. It is the one that that I'm wanting to put into other people's hands. Yeah. It's one that is that is still on my mind. It is the one with the characters who I who I am still mourning myself. Yeah. Okay. I will buy that for her and then I will have her get her book club to read it. Oh, so Jack, that would be so good. the purchases. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> be the best. Okay. Lori Frankel, thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature. Jack, this was this was the most fun. <laughs> this was the most fun podcast. And I think I said that last time we did this. Uh, and you I didn't it. think that one could be topped, but but you did. This was fantastic. <laughs> Hey, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Scott Carter for joining me, giving us the Tolstoyan perspective on the gospel. His play, Scott Carter's play, is called Discord, and it's streaming at the Philadelphia Lantern Theater Company website from now through December 19th, 2021. If you're listening to this podcast episode after that, you might want to Google Scott Carter Discord to see where and when the performance is available. And my thanks to Lori Frankel, my Thanksgiving cooking pal. My guess is she's making some good soups out there in Seattle, filling her house with warm and savory smells. I hope you enjoyed our talk. If you have an idea for a literary game, feel free to shoot me an email. I'd love to hear it. Sometimes it's okay to take off the neckties and loosen that top collar button. Literature is like life, which means we need some lightness mixed in with the dark once in a while. It's okay to have a little meringue. You know I like my coffee black, but I can see the benefits of a little cream and sugar here and there, now and then. I'll pick my spots. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.